So uh, I'm going to speak for a little bit this morning, but then I thought we would open it up um, partially because I'm a little behind the a little behind with traveling, arriving back in town last night and not having really prepared. So full disclosure. <laughs> but I do want to talk about the holidays a little bit. Um, this year, we celebrated Thanksgiving on Friday in our family. Uh, we were visiting Kentucky, uh, family in Kentucky, and turns out, which I didn't find out until about a week, week a week before Thanksgiving, that that side of the family had other plans, <laughs> even though they were hosting us. So, so we rolled with that. Um, it was Araya's birthday proper, so we had our another day of opening gifts. But then Friday rolled around, and I was in charge of making the gravy, um, a mushroom miso gravy, to be specific. Um, but I had forgotten to bring the ingredients with me. <laughs> so um, uh, they were sitting oh so patiently in the refrigerator waiting for us at home. Um, so I thought, okay. What a wonderful time to go to the store, Friday morning. Thanksgiving is over, right? And so I made my way to the local grocery store, this Kroger, right, which we don't have in this neck of the woods. But, and um, I had this thought, I don't think they're gonna have miso paste at Kroger. <laughs> but I thought, why not try anyway? And if, if, if not, at least I could get out of the house for a few minutes and experience a grocery store not overrun by people, you know, clawing to get ready for the Thursday dinner. And so I went to the store and parked the car. And as the metal doors, those glass doors, opened up not more than six feet away from me was a full brass band <laughs> that thought it was a good idea to set up in the foyer of Kroger's and for their audience of one which was me assault me with a brass version of deck the halls <laughs> it was it was jarring to say the least <laughs> But on a more positive note, after about 15 minutes of hunting, I found miso paste. Um, and on the way out, I decided to stop and listen to the band. And they were actually quite good. But in, in that experience, it, it got me thinking, what happened to the pause between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Where did that go? Didn't we used to have a break between holidays? <laughs> a time to catch our breath? Of course, this is, as I said a minute ago, this was also the week of Araya's birthday, and then coming up we have Dana's birthday. And so in our family it's a little bit more crowded, but still. Um, this idea, which I found out is called Christmas creep, 
Have you heard this term before? I think it's really appropriate. Um, not so affectionately known as Christmas creep, right? The commercialization, how it keeps getting earlier and earlier, the sensory overload. Um, and as I was thinking about that, how in my first couple of years of Zen practice, how I dealt with that or didn't so gracefully, um, uh, I can, when I look back, when this time of year rolled around, I, as a, as a new practitioner, um, I kind of enjoyed being a Buddhist, right? It, it gave me a pass of sorts. Um, I was maybe religiously sanctioned to step out of the kind of craziness that is the holidays. And, um, and so those first couple of years, I didn't go to church with my family. Um, I didn't wrap gifts. Um, I proselytized the virtues of what some people may know as buy nothing day. <clears throat> and my family did their best to understand where I was coming from. And yet, when I look back, it didn't feel quite right what I was doing. Right? Those early years, I think, I think my heart was in the right place, sort of. But what I lacked was uh, upaya, skillful means. I wasn't skillful with my family, nor was I really skillful with myself. But what I was, I was desperate. I was desperate to find something more meaningful, to find something that wasn't wrapped up in the emotional tug that I was so familiar with around this time of year, the giving and receiving, the possessiveness, the worrying about whether what I bought somebody would be the right gift or the wrong gift. And in that desperateness, I think I'm not alone. When we're desperate, we lack grace. Right. And so this time of year, I now hopefully do things a little differently with a little bit more presence, not so much about making my position clear about things. And this time of year is quite important for us as practitioners because it is this time of year, at least in a couple of weeks, that we celebrate or commemorate the Buddha's enlightenment, December 8th. And in our ceremony, um, we tell the story of Siddhartha's awakening experience. One of the more troubling aspects of his journey for most people is when he left his family. I think everybody here is familiar with that part of the journey where he, in some versions of the story, he lovingly and without, without, a, without um, uh, much comfort, looked at his sleeping wife and child before he left to practice a life of mendicacy. And I think about how desperate he must have been in that time. 
how desperate he must have been, and yet how he had no choice, in a sense. And yet that choiceless choice that he made also did cause harm to his family. But I think one of the, the, the most meaningful parts of, or the meaning behind that point of the story is that anybody, any of us that really seriously take up practice, this path, we have to leave home. Sometimes quite literally. Um, for example, I think of how many, how many sanghas have gone online. And <clears throat> in a way, it's a beautiful thing to be able to meet virtually from the comfort of our own homes. And yet, part of encountering practice is leaving the comfort of our own homes. Because we have to encounter the Dharma. We have to encounter the teachings. And when we're in our comfort zones, we don't learn. We don't change. So sometimes we have to get up, put on our clothing on a cold Sunday morning, get in our cars. I wish we were on a bus line. But for most of us, get in our cars and make our way to the Zendo. A place that we can encounter not only the teachings, but the Sangha, all of us here. And silence. Right. I remember when I first started practicing as well, I was looking so forward to going to the Rochester Zen Center Zendo. I had never, other than a workshop, I had never been in a formal sit before. And I remember walking into the Zendo and showing up for a Sunday morning and there were, I don't know, 60 or so people that were filing into the Zendo. The stick was used during that sitting, the encouragement stick. Doksan was happening. People were coming and going. And that squeak of that wooden floor was, well, I thought to myself, how the hell can anybody sit <laughs> in this zendo and have any sense of silence with all this happening? Right? But that's exactly what I needed to encounter. That was exactly what was necessary to leave that external quiet so that I could really see the quiet that, because I had already been practicing at home. And when, when I was practicing at home, I could just arrange the pieces so they were just so, just perfect, right? But that wasn't gonna do it. And so I think in addition to leaving, externally leaving our home, I think what's most important really is to leave that internal comfort and that's what I think the story of the Buddha's journey begins with, this quiet revolution that happens when we stop and turn the light around.
So we can talk about consumerism and the culture around the holidays as, and how toxic it is and all the trouble with the holidays, being with family. But is it really out there somewhere? Is it a problem with the culture? Where, where does that, where does it really, where does this silence really show up? I think back to those times, those couple years when I first was encountering practice, and I think I was more reactive than revolutionary. You know, I was more um, kind of defying the status quo and finding any real peace within myself. And that's what I was missing. So sure, a little more, a little less shopping can help, but I think um, it's not so much about checking out, but the radical practice of silence is really about showing up. It, it reminds me of the <clears throat> words of Thomas Merton, who said, about solitude. He said, solitude is not separation. Some people have perhaps become hermits with the thought that sanctity could only be attained by escape from other people. But the only justification for a life of deliberate solitude is the conviction that it will help you love not only God, but also other people. If you go to the desert merely to get away from people, that you dislike, you will find neither peace nor solitude. You will only isolate yourselves with a tribe of devils. <clears throat> now, where does that tribe of devils reside? <laughs> Again, I think about the Buddha's own path, how he tried to isolate himself. He took up the practice of being an ascetic, of a wandering mendicant, but that almost killed him. And so he thought to himself, if I continue this way, then I won't attain liberation. I'll simply die. And so he took nourishment again. And this part of the story, I think, is actually one of the most important parts for me, at least right now, because it wasn't simply about taking food. I think many of you remember that he was approached by somebody and in the way it's told in the story, it was almost like uh, a natural communion where this young woman suddenly appeared to, in front of the Buddha offering him nourishment. But it's not simply about taking <clears throat> the food, but the fact that this young woman who happened to be nearby was encountering the Buddha, and the Buddha was encountering her. It was an intimacy, a giving and a receiving, which doesn't happen when we cut off, right? when we're isolated. So a radical practice around this time, or really any time of the year, is about including everything everybody. This simple act of giving and this simple act of receiving.
coming back to the idea from the beginning, this time of year, with all of its overabundance, the food gatherings, the, or the food, the gatherings, in our tradition, the ceremonies, right? We had a ceremony of gratitude, we had Jukai, we have the Buddha's enlightenment ceremony and Sashin coming up. I think with all of that, our job is to find time to stop. As, as one master said, Churi, he said, to stop and see. At least slow down, at least slow down, and catch your breath. And to be with each other. So in that spirit, I wanna see uh, where is it that you're challenged this time of year? What is, what is, what is your edge of practice? Um, a few people have been sharing those with me. And um, how is it that you're gonna navigate this time of year? with your own uh, families and friends and these holidays that can be such a, uh, a dual-edged sword. So I wanna invite people to, to share. And um, <clears throat> by the way, somebody asked me um, or, or was talking with me recently about, and this is something I touch into once in a while is when we when we go home or see family for the holidays, how often we get drawn into those old habits of being right ways of relating. And I just want to remind us of, I think it's from the book of Mark from the New Testament, where where it says something to the effect of even Jesus couldn't be a prophet in his own hometown, <laughs> right? Among family and friends. Yeah.